I'm Dan Millman, and I came alive one day, and I was born again, in a sense, in a new way, when at 11 years old, I discovered an old trampoline at a summer camp and started jumping up and down, and I haven't stopped since then. Uh, my background includes uh, attending UC Berkeley on an athletic scholarship where I was a gymnast, and I was a world champion on the trampoline uh, in London, England, 1964. And I went on with my teammates. We won the National Collegiate Gymnastics Championships. I was uh, the gymnastics coach at Stanford University, where I coached the top US Olympian, Steve Hug, and uh, a top-ranking team there. I went on to Oberlin College, where I became a professor of physical education and designed unusual courses in body-mind harmony, uh, one I called Way of the Peaceful Warrior, uh, elements of the martial arts. So I've always been a teacher of various things, looking for ways to exert the best leverage to help people uh, live well and help myself at the same time. But I've loved teaching, and that's been my major background, athletics, moving into more holistic realms of endeavor. Defining spirituality is like trying to define love, a very tricky term. I used to think I had an idea what spirituality was about. I thought it was inward, upward, elsewhere, somewhere else, somewhere more subtle, more refined than this world. But today, I don't know what spirit is anymore. I can't differentiate it from anything else. Everywhere I look, uh, at the littered streets of the city, uh, not just in a beautiful sunset or a, a lovely morning with birds singing like we have today, but anytime, any place, anyone, I see aspects of spirit, the high and the low, the light and the darkness. So defining spirituality with a formula, um, I can't do it in the traditional ways of being somewhere different from daily life. In fact, part of my teaching is that daily life is a form of spiritual practice. Our relationships, children, work, education, finances, health, fitness, all those things are forms of spiritual weightlifting to strengthen our spirit. So many speakers have used the phrase that we are not human beings endeavoring to become spiritual or having a spiritual experience. We are spirits uh, having a human experience. That's been said many different ways. So that's one way to answer the question, that I'm no more or less spiritual than anything else, because spirit infuses everyone and everything. But in a sense of awakening to a more spiritual reality, that I can answer with a short story. Uh, there was a man who was seeking spirit. He was seeking uh, happiness uh, and inspiration. And he, and he looked everywhere, and he found out a lot of things could make him happy. But nothing seemed to last. And one day, near the end of his life, he climbed a, a sacred mountain and stood at the top and reached up to the heavens and said, fill me full of light. And he waited, and the heavens parted, and a voice thundered down, I'm always filling you, but you keep leaking. And maybe that's the human condition, that we have these leaks. I'm working on a new book, which will be published by Warner Books uh, somewhere around the fall of 1997, called The Twelve Gateways to Human Potential. And that's going to clarify the specific ways that we can free our attention, where it's been imprisoned, to start to notice spirit all around us. It's not as if the weather person says one morning, there's 20% chance of rain and 30% spirit out. Uh, spirit is always here. The sense of inspiration all of us have felt at one time or another in our life but we don't notice it. As one sage once said, there's God, then there's not paying attention. And often we're not paying attention to notice 
of the beauty around us because we're saying, oh, my back aches, or what am I going to do about the car payment, or I don't know about my educational decisions here, or I'm having difficulty in my relationships. So our attention is trapped. To me, it's a matter of realizing the spirit that's all around us. To me, that's what spiritual life is about. And there are practical disciplines, ordinary disciplines, we can engage in daily life. It doesn't necessarily involve going off in a corner and sitting and meditating. Uh, a man came up to me at a lecture once and said, Dan, I want to be more spiritual. I want to do more spiritual practices. But I, I've got a wife and three kids and a full-time job. And he and I laughed about that later because his wife and children and his job were his spiritual practice. And it's tougher than sitting in a cave and meditating. I know because I've done both. It's been said that we can only live life forwards, but only understand it backwards. So looking back, say in retrospect, um, when I was a young boy, I wondered, what are the rules here? How does this place work? I noticed many people around me seemed confused and unhappy, and I was trying to figure out the world, and I was trying to figure out some principles or wise sayings, aphorisms, it become a hobby of mine collecting uh, sayings from around the world. I'm going to do a future book on that too. Uh, I tried to find principles about life. And first of all, at least in the athletic realm, there were certain rules. If you did such and such, you got this score in gymnastics. So it gave me a sense of security, but it didn't help me when I went out on a date in terms of being intimate, intimate with someone else or vulnerable. Um, it didn't help me raising children or doing many of the things in life. So I started looking for broader principles. So what began is principles of learning, physical training. In my book, The Inner Athlete, I write down those principles, how people, people can learn more effectively uh, and link up what they're learning in sport to their daily life, looking at the bigger picture of sport and its meaning and purpose. Um, so it started out in the realm of sport, but then the principles got broader and broader, and they became what I would call spiritual laws or natural laws, universal laws. And in my latest book, The Laws of Spirit, uh, I go into that, I tell a parable uh, as I go for a walk in the hills near my house, I meet a, an ageless woman sage who teaches me through the natural world about these laws of spirit. And it's a parable that uh, conveys principles that make life work better. Uh, so that's where I shifted from sport into the broader arena of daily life. I'm coming full circle. Where it began was trampling, the joy of jumping and finding out that my attention uh, came back right to the present moment. I was intensely alive while jumping in the air and somersaulting. And that led into gymnastics, which led into sports, which led into the broader view of movement training and skill training, which led into um, principles for living. And now, though, when I finally retire, it may not be for a while, I have more books in me, uh, I'll probably open up a little trampoline school somewhere. And, just for the joy of teaching and passing on what I've learned. Yes, the mind, emotions, and body can seem to come together in one instant. In reality, they've never left one another. We talk about the mind and the emotions and the body as if they're separate for the sake of analysis. 
And people come to the point where they assume, oh yeah, there's the mind, then there's the emotions, then there's the body, but one cannot exist. You don't have a mind unless you have a body. And the mind affects the body. We all know this. There's more and more research being done, more sophisticated research on how our thoughts actually step by step go into our endocrine system and our hormones and, and uh, affect the body in various ways. But there is something special about movement training, about sport, about martial arts, about facing our moment of truth. Because even if we're playing violin in a performance or playing piano or doing a dance or juggling, it doesn't have to be a competitive sport. But in that moment of silence, that moment of truth, uh, we do have to work as a whole and we engage the best parts of our attention, our feeling and motivation, and our physical skill. They become integrated consciously. Whereas if you're studying history in school, you do have to have a moderately healthy body. If you're exhausted or in pain, it's harder to concentrate. But we primarily focus on the mind. That's what academic institutions do. Whereas uh, the Greek uh, traditions, of course, Plato, Socrates, the healthy mind and the healthy body, they recognize that life uh, is about all these things because a chain breaks at its weakest link, and so do we. And we can be very intelligent, but if the bodies are weak link, that's where we're going to break. So there's a, a view toward life that we have to look at those weak links and strengthen those to become fully human. And that's what the most recent book that's coming out soon, The Twelve Gateways to Human Potential, is about. It, it likens life to a game of Chinese checkers. You have to get all the marbles across the board to complete the game. And there are, as it happens, there are 12 marbles. I'm only going to touch upon a few of the gateways because if I say all 12, something happens. There's an internal hurdle of the psyche people have to overcome that's called, I know that already. And many times people hear a term and they go, oh, I know about that, I've read about it. But of course we can know things deeper and deeper and deeper. But I'll give you a sample of a few of the gateways to human potential that all of us ultimately and eventually have to master in order to reach our full potential. One, obviously, is taming the mind. But the approach I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about in the book is very different from what's traditionally been talked about, as if sitting down and meditating will tame the mind. It does have. It's a form of useful practice. But it's been glorified to a point. Uh, I, see, I see training, I see meditation as a form of fitness training. And most people don't view it as that. But it, holistic fitness, becoming who we are fully, does involve a period of just sitting and letting thoughts go and practicing that. So we can do it in daily life. But if we only do it when our eyes are closed in a corner somewhere, we haven't gotten the point. Accepting emotions is another gateway to human potential, but not in the way many people may have assumed. Most of us talk about accepting emotions in the sense of saying emotions are okay and then expressing our feelings and knowing what we're feeling. That's very valuable and useful. But accepting means not trying to fix them, not trying to avoid them. It's completely embracing, just like we might embrace a cloudy day as well as a sunny one. Uh, emotions are very much like the weather. We have very little control over emotions. We can influence them indirectly by our uh, posture, our breathing, our environment, but we can't by our will just say, I'm going to be happy right now. I'm going to stop worrying right now. So it's accepting whatever passes through us and recognizing feelings fade. In fact, after one of my lectures, someone came up to me recently and said, I feel so inspired, Dan. And I said, don't worry, it'll pass. Because good feelings pass, bad feelings pass. If we accept that, we let them come and we still do whatever we need to do in the moment. So that's a little, kind of a gist of what I'm going to be writing about in accepting emotions. Those are two of the gateways. And there may be some other gateways that will surprise people, dealing with money, for example, as a spiritual discipline.
Way of the Peaceful Warrior, my first book, essentially, uh, it's been called my signature book, it's the one most people have read, is a novel. It is a work of fiction based upon a true story. I wish I could be less ambiguous and say it's totally factual or totally fiction, but it is based a lot upon my life. I did meet an, an unusual, enigmatic, wise old man I called Socrates in a gas station about three in the morning in Berkeley. But there are fictional elements in it for the sake of the story. Um, so I won't go into all the parts that are true. I do have a website um, people can search for under Peaceful Warrior, and it's just uh, www.danmillman.com if someone wants to look up the website. And I have answers to frequently asked questions about how much is true. People, many people ask me that. I have no desire to delude people. There's enough lack of discrimination and illusion in the new age. Uh, people are wondering, do subliminal tapes really work? Do affirmations work? Will positive thinking really change my life? And those things haven't been subject, subject to uh, double-blind controlled studies to find out if they really work or not, and they need to be. But not certain things don't do well with double-blind studies. Intuitive capacities, for example, aren't always on call during an experiment. Relating to the question of did my life change in one dramatic or two dramatic moments with the old man I called Socrates in the gas station, I would say it's a natural question because many people would like to have one dramatic event, uh, being touched in the forehead by a spiritual master or um, have some event happen in their life where suddenly they see the light and that's it, no problems after that. I think having it all together is like trying to eat once and for all. I see illumination or awakening it more as like turning a dimmer switch up slowly on a light rather than turning a light switch on all of a sudden. Um, life is a series of moments, that's what I've observed. And some moments are more illumined and some less illumined in my own case. I can't speak of other people's practice. But the images we have of permanently enlightened masters, I've known enough of those people to know that there are moments they do not act illumined at all. Um, so it's more realistic to say we have more illumined moments over time. And so it was not one moment in a gas station or just with the old man I called Socrates where I began to awaken. I believe our life is a school and daily life is the classroom and our awakening happens over time. There may be certain intense moments where we learn a lot. Uh, difficulties in relationship, a bankruptcy, a divorce are sometimes pleasant, sometimes not pleasant, but they shake us up. Uh, in the sense of giving us new reference points, expanding our vision. And that's how it's happened to me, facing the challenges of daily life, becoming more responsible over time, and seeing the bigger picture of life. And that's what I endeavor to do in my writings and my, my lectures, to remind people of what they already know but might have forgotten. Well, people do ask me a lot about Socrates, and they say, I wish that I had had a Socrates in my life. That's why I emphasize to people that our Socrates is all around. You know, we, we've, in my second book, Sacred Journey of the Peaceful Warrior, Mama Chia, I had a woman teacher, a, a kahuna, a Hawaiian shaman in that story, and she said, many people have heard the saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. What they don't realize is that it, it's not about suddenly being deserving or prepared enough where a teacher walks into your life and leads you through to wisdom up the path. It's more when the student is truly ready, the teacher appears everywhere, everywhere, in our friends, our adversaries, our kids, our students, 
uh, trees blowing in the wind, clouds passing overhead. We can learn lessons from all those things. So it's not about the old man. There's a tendency to put the focus on the teacher, uh, Socrates or another teacher, waiting for them. It's a, kind of a, a childlike approach to spiritual life. Who will guide me? Um, people do the same thing with me sometimes, and I, I diffuse that very quickly. Uh, sometimes people want to have their picture taken with me, and I'm a pretty accommodating guy, but not with pictures, because it's about mistaking the wrapping for the gift. Uh, it's not about me. If I hear a radio station that I really like, I love the music or whatever talk is going on, I don't worship the radio. It's just a radio. It's the programming. It's the material. It's the wisdom. It's not who it's coming through. So I don't make a big deal about Socrates. He became the spokesman for what I had to say that I've learned from a number of teachers in my life. Uh, not all of them played the role of teacher. Some were my, my wise wife, Joy, and, and uh, my children. I've learned a lot from them and other people I meet every day. Enlightenment is one of those uh, tricky terms, like love or spirituality. We have, again, we have to deal with the image of the enlightened master sitting Buddha-like with a beatific smile in his or her face, um, who walks through every situation calm and serene. To me, the illumined mind is not always serene, Some, it's, but it's flexible. If my house is on fire and I wake up one night and it's on fire, I'm not going to be serene. I'm going to do what needs to be done in that moment, including getting out of the house, getting the kids, uh, and doing whatever I can constructively in that moment. It may not be the appropriate time to be serene, certainly not to panic. So illumination, we all have views and images of what that may be like, but it's the person next door to us might be illumined. We might not know it. It's very difficult to judge someone else's practice, and it may not be looking a certain way. Um, many people put on the style of an illumined master when they're in the public anyway. But I don't even know what to say about enlightenment anymore. It's not my goal. Maybe illumination is when you finally no longer have that as a goal and you just live life as best you can. Other people may have different views, but that's my sense of it. On the question of money and, and money versus spirit and commercialization, um, that subject is close to my heart because I think it's widely misunderstood by the public. And again, in, in the upcoming book, The Twelve Gateways to Human Potential, one of the gateways we have to master is managing money, uh, not making it our god or our devil, but understanding it realistically in perspective. Someone once said I was the commercial Carlos Castaneda. I found that amusing. Uh, by commercial, it's because I have sold audio tapes and sold books, and even sold t-shirts. Uh, I have a family. Real life involves making a living. If you have kids, if you're a single person in college, whatever, you don't need that much money, and that's, that's one part of life. But if you're raising children and want to give them uh, a good schooling, the best school around, if that happens to be an alternative school, um, get a college education for them, give them things, you know, because you, you love them. Um, then it's necessary to engage in the marketplace. And I never set out to make money doing what I do. It's been like a miracle. Um, I wrote Peaceful Warrior because I thought maybe some college students might like it. I had no idea. Millions of people, business schools, you know, industry, and many walks of life would, 
would find the book touching. Uh, so I didn't actually write it to make money, and I have made money, and I'm wonderful. I'm delighted that I'm able to make good money doing what I enjoy, serving other people. Uh, I've been really blessed in that way. I paid my dues. I, Fifteen years ago, even after Way of the Peaceful Warrior was published and then went out of print for a while, um, I was making $7 an hour working two jobs as a typist. And I did that for quite some time, just struggling along, going deeper into debt. So I know what it's like to be at least relatively uh, impoverished, looking in the couch for change to get a videotape. It's not the, the depths of poverty, but I know what it's like to, when money's tight. And so now I've written enough books, and they've been uh, well-received enough, where I do make money selling books and tapes, and I hope they're useful. Um, but people's images of that money is somehow unspiritual, I would just ask them to re-examine that in a year or two or three, when they've gotten into real life, when they have to have a job or support a family. And they'll find it's simply, uh, what's a job that's good livelihood, that's useful to people? And to me, that's what it's about, not not having prejudice for or against money. Money doesn't make you happy. It's just one of those functional parts of life. There are, there are people who work for themselves, who are independent, uh, body workers, astrologers, uh, psychologists, whoever, people who just work for themselves. I often let them know that there are two things they need to be successful. One is they need to be good at what they do. If they're not good at what they do, they should probably go hide somewhere. But if they're good at what they do, they also have to be good at promoting what they do. That's the second thing. And so many people who are good at what they do, whether they're musicians or body workers, they, they'd rather work on their craft than go out and do the mundane activity of trying to promote their activity. Um, but as, if they're good at what they do, they can't be of benefit to anybody if those people don't know about them. So that's why it is important for people to be willing to promote what they do so more people can hear about them and they can reach out and exert some positive leverage in people's lives. Inherent in the idea of religion is the concept of belief. Uh, when pe spe people speak of religion, they often say religious belief. And there are many different beliefs about God, approaches to God, uh, and religious life, different traditions and practices. I've found that there are two kinds of beliefs, conscious beliefs and unconscious beliefs. Conscious beliefs are simply those we recognize as beliefs. We go, I believe this or this is true for me. It may not be for you. Unconscious beliefs are the very core and source of fundamentalism. And I don't just mean religious fundamentalism. I mean cooking school fundamentalism, any kind that says, my approach, my way is correct. It is truth with a capital T. Yours is incorrect because it differs from my way. People who have this approach, this fundamentalist approach to life, whether it's their religion or not, um, this is not casting aspersion on religion. Because many people are very, very tolerant, open-minded, saying this, is, this religion works for me. Yours may be different, it may be wonderful for you. But fundamentalists say, I know the truth. And that's why they can tend to be a more fanatical. And they support themselves with their own beliefs. It's true because it's true in the sacred book, and it must be true. Um, I think we're going to be seeing the death of fundamentalism, uh, not in a negative way, but as it passes on into a different level of understanding, where people are more tolerant of one another's beliefs. The age of Aquarius is not all having one world, one government, one belief, one religion. It's about complete embracing all the religions. So if people ask me, one person says, what's your religion? I go, I'm a Christian. If they say, someone else asks me, I'm a Jew. If someone else asks me, I'm a Sufi. I'm a, I'm a Buddhist. Uh, I would hope truly to say I'm all those religions. 
because I embrace the heart of all religions, which, which is about direct, tacit realization and understanding and contact and love of the spiritual reality uh, that lives and breathes us. And I, I like the term spiritual because it encompasses all religions, that approach to life that is looking at the bigger picture, um, that there's got to be more to life than just the news, weather, and sports, uh, more than just uh, growing up, get, getting educated, getting married, making as much money as you can, going on vacations, having kids, retiring and dying. Um, that's just a more sophisticated animalistic existence. And I would hope that life is more than that, because even though that can be very interesting, there must be a bigger picture. Anybody who's looked up at the starry sky at night or seen a flower blossoming and the miracle of how life works here, it's got to be something more. And we've all felt that in dreams, in moments in our life of inspiration, that there's a, a reality that underlies and transcends um, everyday life. There's a depth there. And that's what I think spirituality is about, the essence of spirituality. There are, there are writers who are psychotherapists, for example, and they have a regular client base, and they tell stories based upon the clients they've had, or make up stories, whatever. Um, there are occasions where I've known somebody who serves as a good example or a model of a point I'm making. I love to tell stories and anecdotes uh, about people, but I usually use myself as the guinea pig um, because I've made enough mistakes where people can recognize bits of themselves in me. For example, one day I was complaining to Socrates uh, about a professor who was really down on me. He was giving me a hard time. And Socrates said, you know, Dan, you remind me of a construction worker I knew in the Midwest. Every single day, he'd open his lunchbox and complain about his lunch. He'd say, not another peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I hate peanut butter and jelly. The next day, opened his lunchbox and went, peanut butter and jelly again? Well, he did this every day until finally one of his workmates said, Mac, if you don't like your lunch, why don't you ask your wife to make you something different? And Mac looked at him and said, what do you mean? I'm not married. I make my own sandwiches. And so little stories like that tell us about maybe responsibility, reminders about life. Uh, so I love anecdotes, but I don't use people I meet in daily life. So none of my friends need worry that they're going to appear in one of my books, at least in a recognizable way. If someone asked me uh, what books I recommend or what teachers I recommend, I remind them that I'm not here for people to trust me. I'm here to help people trust themselves. It's a sacred process, even choosing a book in a bookstore. When someone walks into a bookstore, any of us have had this experience, we just walk by some books because we're, we've already been there. Uh, other books we don't pick up because we almost can't see them because we're not there yet. We're not ready yet for them. And certain books, we find the right book at the right time and it's almost magic. It seems, so it's a sacred process choosing a book. So when I recommend someone check out a book, I don't recommend they read it. I recommend they just feel it, open the pages, and get a sense of whether it's for them at that time. And if it's not, I respect their process. People ask me about martial arts teachers sometimes. What martial arts should I take? And I tell them, look in the yellow pages, look in the phone book, see schools in a practical driving distance, and find a teacher you like. It's more important than the particular style. And so I think, we all vibrate at different levels. We're all at different places in our own evolution. Uh, that's why there need to be more than one book in the bookstore, because we're at different places. So I really leave it to the individual to what books, whether they're mine or someone else's, appeal to them.
Terms like the soul and, and life after death and so on, these are concepts that I believe each one of us should come to our own conclusions. I happen to live on the basis that I chose before I was born that my soul, my spirit, my subconscious, whatever term you want to use, and they all mean different things. I define them in some of my books in a way that I think is pretty clear, um, that I chose everything that ever is going to happen to me this lifetime good things, bad things, I chose them for my highest good in learning. Now, if someone said, is that true? I'd go, I don't know. But I'm living on the basis of that. That's what faith is to me, that everything that happens to us is the courage to live on the basis that everything that happens is for our highest good in learning. And again, I don't know if that's correct in some factual cosmic sense. But if I live that way, I don't feel like a victim. It's like, well, if I chose this on some level, then I might as well make the best of it. So do I believe in reincarnation? Well, something like that, uh, I live on that basis because life makes more sense that way than just working hard, learning all we can, and then snuffing it all out goes back to zero. Um, if there is in some sense some bit of consciousness that transfers and another soul, uh, another embodiment, same soul, another embodiment takes that on, it makes more sense. It makes life more meaningful to me. So I choose to believe that. But I would not go to battle with someone over what is ultimately true and not. I'm, I focus on the present moment, managing things, handling what's in front of me. Uh, it's fun to talk about philosophies and abstractions and concepts, but the question that always comes before me is, what needs doing right now? I heard a saying some years ago that after 50 years old, the person is responsible for his or her face. I don't mean just their face, their whole body, but I think the saying meant that we all are born with tendencies. We have genetic tendencies. Maybe we, our parents lived a long time. Maybe they looked young. I think we give too much weight to genetics because that's a way to take no responsibility for our life. Well, my parents lived a long time. I probably will. But I think it stands to reason that if somebody's parents lived a long time, but they never exercise, smoke heavily, drink a lot, eat junk food, and don't move around and are stressed out, then they may not live as long as their parents did. Whereas someone whose parents didn't live a long time, if they take good care of themselves, it at least increases the likelihood to live a longer time. So there are many tendencies in our lives, uh, how long we live, uh, what our body type is, uh, our health, and so on. But there are simple, basic things we can do. We can integrate into our lifestyle, uh, right eating, eating as well as we can, eating more of what we, is good for us and less of what isn't good for us, not any puritanical uh, regimen. I'm not a Puritan. A Puritan has been defined as someone who stays up late at night worrying that somewhere somebody is having a good time. I'm not a Puritan or a hedonist. There's a balance somewhere in there. But I do eat well. I happen to be a vegan. I don't eat meat or fish or chicken or dairy products. I haven't eaten dairy products in about eight, nine years. I haven't eaten meat for 35 years. Um, my daughters haven't either, not because we force them, but they just started out not doing that and decided not to. We're all quite a healthy family, all of us. Uh, kids are straight A's in school, and they're both you know, athletic and very fit. And so I think diet has a lot to do with it. We know that. Not a perfect diet, but basically a moderate diet uh, that evolves over time. Exercise has a lot to do with it. One that nutritional expert once said that better to eat a standard American diet, abbreviated SAD, S-A-D, um, of junk food and exercise regularly than eat pure natural organic food and never exercise. 
I think exercise is very important. Also, sense of humor, I think, is quite important. All those things help the immune system. Germs are in the air all the time. How come we get sick sometime and not others? It has a lot to do with our immune system. And of course, many people know this today. And I don't think it's about positive thinking. I don't think that's realistic to think we can go around all day thinking positively. Uh, very few of us would raise our hand if I said, are you positive all day? Because sometimes we're positive, sometimes we're not. People sometimes say to me, Dan, you're a real nice guy. And I go, yeah, some of the time. I think some of the time we're this and some of the time we're that. All we can do is to increase those moments that we uh, have a positive approach to life and are kind and are aware. I never know which book is going to come up next until it's right in my face and suddenly it takes priority. Books are like lined up at the runway. Uh, I'll eventually stop when I have nothing else to say. I will uh, have the good grace to stop writing. Life to me is a mystery and it's become more mysterious over time, not less mysterious. I'm not trying to know and have it all down like seeing a magic trick and having to know exactly how it, how it works so the mystery is gone. To me, it's more mysterious all the time. I wrote a book called The Life You Were Born to Live. That book helps people clarify their life purpose and the core issues of their life. The system they use is based upon their date of birth. Now, someone could ask me, how can someone's date of birth on the Gregorian calendar, not to mention the Chinese, Hindu, Arabic, calendar possibly give valid, reliable, accurate information about someone's life purpose. Come on. People should be skeptical. And yet, the mind's like a parachute. It works best when it's open. If someone opens the book and looks at their birth number, they are going to find it astonishing how accurate the material is. Can I explain how it works? No. I only know I was trained many years ago. I've worked with the material in depth, and thousands of people have attested um, to its accuracy. It's right to the point. It do, it's not abstract where someone has to kind of project themselves into it and say, well, I think that's a little about me. It's right on. And that points to the mystery of this world. There's so much we haven't discovered yet uh, in the spiritual realms. How we could possibly be connected, how someone's date of birth could give that kind of information. And yet it does. Uh, so there's many mysteries in this life, and that book reflects one of them. Ancient cultures uh, almost universally had shamanistic elements, the, the earth, the sky, the elements. Life was a mystery, and they lived close to the earth. They lived in contact with the coldness of the air, and they didn't have the buffers and hedges we have today to insulate ourselves and, and stay comfortable. So people were naturally more shamanistic in terms of looking at... Uh, uh, it was their science. They made models of how life worked, and they called them spirits and demons and angels. Uh, and we have more sophisticated terms, perhaps, that aren't really more sophisticated at all. We have our scientific culture. Science is a great leap ahead for humanity. It took us out of the dark ages of superstition. But science itself, with some people, has become a religion. Uh, that if we don't know about it our way, if we can't measure it, observe it, and test it, it doesn't exist. So that's the limit of science. There are different ways of knowing things. Mystics want to know what the laws of the universe are. Scientists do as well. And at the furthest reaches of science, in physics and uh, other areas of science, it's touching upon areas of spirituality.
the term peaceful warrior does seem like a paradox or an oxymoron. How can you be a peaceful and a warrior? Because isn't warrior about war and fighting? And by definition, you'd think it couldn't be peaceful. It wasn't just a fancy term. At the heart of all martial arts is the training of the body, mind, and emotions as a whole, as a unit. Uh, the warriors knew that physical skill alone would not suffice if the mind were distracted or the emotions in turmoil. So they had to train the entire being uh, in, to face that moment of truth, of life and death. But it wasn't just about fighting. So I said, it's not warrior exactly, it's peaceful warrior. It's about the battle each of us has inside. It's not about fighting in the world. It's about dealing with our adversaries of fear and insecurity, self-doubt. That's where the real battle is. When we uh, emerge victorious in that battle and learn how to master our, ourselves, the world changes around us. So that's why I call it the way of the peaceful warrior. There, there have been many great warriors in history, grounded, committed, strong, admirable, and yet not many of them had a peaceful heart. And there have been many peacemakers in history, nourishing, supportive, uh, caring, but not too many of them have had a warrior spirit. So the way of the peaceful warrior is about the way of daily life, combining uh, warrior spirit with a peaceful heart. In two of my books, I've had a, a woman teacher, and I wanted uh, my readers to know that obviously teachers aren't all male or all female. Um, we have to reach a balance inside of us, those male qualities, those female qualities. Uh, so Mama Chia was a character in Sacred Journey of the Peaceful Warrior, which is a sequel to my first book. And she had different qualities from Socrates. He was sort of a, a butt kicker. He was a tough old guy. Uh, gave me some hard lessons. Whereas Mama Chia was more of a nourishing character, though she took me uh, through some adventures as well. So they had very different personalities. Uh, in my latest book, The Laws of Spirit, there's an, an ageless woman sage, but that's more of a parable than a novel. She was a literary device, and I state that in the preface. But I felt it was important to have, say, a woman's touch. I see life around us in the world as a projection of our psyches, of our own state of awareness. We don't see the world as it is. We see it through a window of our thoughts, beliefs, interpretations, and associations. And this idea of the battle between the war between the sexes is really reflects that human, as human beings, we haven't come into balance yet. I teach uh, knife fighting training. Uh, we use rubber knives. Nobody gets killed. Up in Sonoma, three times a year, I call it the courage training. And it involves many things. It's really a personal growth training, but we use martial arts as a method. And uh, there's a, a moment of truth people face. There's a test at the end. People come from all over the world to do this. Um, and one of the things that we require for someone to pass the test is to find a balance in themselves so it shows in the way they move, in the way they respond, between the more receptive elements and the more assertive elements of their character. If they're only assertive, it doesn't work. If they're only receptive and passive, it doesn't work. So it's combining, and when the male and female qualities, if I can speak of them in those terms, combine inside of us, uh, we become balanced, and then we notice the world becomes balanced as well. When it happens as, as a society, uh, there won't be any more issues with whether we should swing from a patriarchy to a matriarchy. I don't think that's the answer. I think it's to find a balance. Uh, and this is off the cuff. I don't know if you'll use this, but some people have said, when a woman acts like a man, why can't she act like a nice man? Because some women feel like they have to be more like men to get into the business world. And no, they have to be humans. 
Um, my work has never um, been directed at men's movements or women's movements. Uh, it's been directed at human beings and what we share in common while respecting our differences.